So as we look forward to Christmas, we've been going through the last couple weeks, we've been going through this phrase, God with us. The last two weeks, first, Pastor Brian spoke on God, and he talked about how Jesus, the Son of God, truly is fully God, and what that means for us as we think about Christmas. Then Austin last week talked about the withness of God, and he focused on the second word, with. So this morning, we're going to be focusing on the word us, and what does it mean that Jesus put on flesh, that Jesus became like us, that he's fully God, and he is fully man. So we're going to be looking at a passage in Philippians, if you have your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we have ushers that will come forward to pass out Bibles and distribute them to you. If you don't own a Bible, please take a Bible as a gift from us so that you can have the Word of God to study it every day. We don't just come here on Sundays to gather to study God's Word, but we do it as Christians. We study God's Word every day because we truly need the truth of God's Word in our lives to be transformed because it's alive and active and it speaks to our hearts and our souls. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11 this morning. And I just want to encourage you, if you have your own Bible, bring it. Bring it with you to church. Bring it with you wherever you go so you can study God's word. And then if you also have a pen or a pencil or a paper, it's, it's good to take notes as well. I often forget many things that I hear. My wife knows that. Um, unfortunately. So I try to write things down and take notes, to-do lists and things like that. So if there's things that you have questions about as we're studying God's word today, take notes, things that stand out to you so that you can remember it and hide it in our hearts so that we can really praise the Lord in our, in our deeds and our words throughout the week as well. There's a great theological depth found in this passage this morning. But as we start, I want us to remember that it wasn't just given specifically for systematic theology, but it was given to the church for practical purposes as well. So when writing this letter, Paul is in prison in Rome, and Paul's writing this letter to inform the church in Philippi that his present imprisonment is not changing anything about what God is doing, that God still has a plan, that he will be glorified in and through our sufferings. And so Paul is writing this letter to help the church to understand that unity is so important to God. So before we even open up and read from Philippians chapter 2, will you pray with me? Father, we're so thankful that we can come and gather today on this Sunday morning. God, we think of those who don't have this amazing opportunity or the freedom to gather. Our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world that are in prison or in homes, not able to gather in buildings like this. So, Lord, we pray that you would bless them, continue to help them to persevere in their faith. Lord, we thank you today. We pray for those who are not with us this morning that maybe have sick or, or, or ill, and we pray that they would be healed. Lord, we pray for those who are going through some really hard times right now that are grieving. Lord, we pray that you would help them, comfort them by the power of your spirit. And, Lord, as we open your word, we pray that you would help us, that your word would be illuminated by the power of your spirit so that we can understand be transformed in the likeness of Christ. This is what we ask, Lord, to be more like Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. If you want to follow along, I'm going to read the first four verses. And I'm going to kind of break it up into sections and then kind of go through verse by verse here. 
Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any, participate, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul here starts off by giving these four rhetorical statements. And in different translations, you might be reading some of these words like encouragement in Christ. You might have a translation that says consolation in Christ or comfort in Christ. But this word here for encouragement in this passage in the ancient Greek is periklesis. It's the idea for this word of encouragement in the New Testament. It's much more than just bringing comfort or trying to come alongside someone and making them feel better by soothing them. But it actually has this idea of strengthening, helping someone, coming alongside, building them up to become brave or making them strong. The word uh, that's communicated by the Latin word for comfort, which is fortis, comes also from this word, which means brave. The love of God in our life makes us strong. It makes us brave. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of a story, usually around this time when I was growing up, um, I grew up with both of my brothers. Um, I have an older brother who's three years older than me, and I have a younger brother who's three years younger than me. So we always like to kind of play sports and be active. And during the week of Christmas and New Year's, we would always have an annual tradition to have a Nerf gun battle. So on New Year's Eve especially, we would stay up till midnight, and as we were staying up late, we would have our Nerf battle. We would divide up into teams. But because there was only five of us, we kind of have an unfair advantage whoever had the other extra person in our family. So maybe it would be me and my mom and my younger brother versus my dad and my older brother. And then we would divide up our Nerf guns. Well, the real advantage in the battle wasn't really the guns or the ammunition or the people. It was how good your fort was. And so we were given 10 minutes to build our fort because if you had a good fort, you were fortified and it would make you so that you wouldn't be able to get hit by a Nerf dart. So as I'm reminded of this, right, it was in the building of the fort that actually made our team brave to face the battle. In our passage here, it's reminding us that not only is God's comfort our fort to be brave in this world, but it's Christ himself. Christ himself is our encouragement. That Jesus, as we read throughout the passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament, reveals that Jesus is our refuge. He's our strength and our fort. Paul continues and he says, do you have any comfort from love? We are reminded in 2 Corinthians that says that God is the God of all comfort. There is no way he cannot comfort us, no circumstance beyond his comfort. And for those of us even here today, we need to be reminded of this. For many of us are grieving, especially during the holiday times, it's hard. It's hard to look back and remember those who are no longer with us, those who've lost loved ones. And the holiday seasons can seem insurmountable at times. But we're reminded again of the great comfort that comes along with Christ's love. God's love for us brings us comfort. The third phrase here is the participation in the spirit. In the ancient Greek, the word Kononia, it means the sharing of things in common. Can you believe that as a Christian, 
that now you are a new creation in Christ, that we now share life with the Spirit of God. We never knew him before, but now that as we are redeemed and reconciled to the Father, we now share life with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fills us, guides us, moves in our lives in powerful and precious ways. So, of course, as Paul is bringing up these things, any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, that the believers are reminded that they truly have experienced all of these things. The encouragement of Christ, the comfort from love, the participation in the Spirit, and the affection and sympathy. So even if, as we think about these things, let's think and be reminded of Paul and who he was talking to, that even the first people he encounters in Philippi with the gospel, Lydia, do you remember the woman who sells the purple cloth, who's saved, who then opens her home so that it can be used by the church? Of course she experienced these things. Maybe another example, do you remember the slave girl who was possessed by a demon, who was fortune-telling, and yet when she encounters the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit, she's healed and becomes saved from a life of torment and slavery. Another example, the Philippian jailer. Do you remember when Timothy was in prison and he's singing praises to God and all of a sudden there was an earthquake. It was God moving in the jail and the chains fell off and the jailer was going to take his own life but then Paul stops him and the jailer says, what can I do to be saved? He and his whole household is saved then. He witnesses the miracle in the jail cells. What an amazing testimony that we too have experienced the amazing power, the life transformation that happens through God's work in us because of Christ Jesus. So Paul tells the Philippians, in light of experiencing these things, now I want to ask you to do some things that are maybe uncomfortable, some things that are challenging. So church, this is our challenge this morning as well. As we're reminded of the Christmas season, we're going to take a look at the next couple verses that are going to be a challenge for us. But it's not just for us alone. It's for us as the body with the power of the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. And church, have you experienced these things? The encouragement of Christ, the comfort from love, the participation of the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Have you experienced these things? Have you experienced these things recently? Because each of these gifts, they're communicated to us both in a direct spiritual way from Jesus and from Jesus through his people, from one another. As we look around this room, maybe you have experienced the comfort of God's love because someone has blessed you in this room, provided meals for you, prayed over you. You've experienced healing from Jesus. And I want to remind us that there's sometimes we desire to experience the love of God and these amazing things, these gifts from God, but we don't allow other people to work effectively in our lives, to come alongside us and help us in these things. But God cares for us, and he uses people in the church to help us. It reminds me of this made-up story, maybe you've heard it before, of a man who's stranded out at sea, and as he's out there, he prays. God, save me. Along comes a motorboat, right? You remember the story? The guy says, hey, we're here to help you. Oh, no, no, it's okay. I prayed that God would save me. I don't need your help. 
the motorboat goes along the way. God, please help me. Save me. Along comes a cruise ship. The guy, the captain of the cruise ship calls out, hey, we, we're going to cast out a life vest out for you. We're going to save you. No, it's okay. I, I called on God. God's going to save me. Don't worry about it. It's okay. God's going to save me. I trust him. And then goes the cruise ship, goes away. The third day, God, will you save me? A helicopter comes. Right? The guy in the helicopter, we're here to save you. We're going to throw down a rope for you. Just hop on. No, no, no. I asked God to save me. You remember the story? Well, eventually the man in, in the sea, he meets God. Okay? And there he's with God. And he says, God, why didn't you save me? I called out to you three different times. And God says, what are you talking about? I sent a motorboat, a cruise ship, and a helicopter to save you. Well, sometimes we need to rely on one another. It's a silly story, but it's, it's a good reminder to us that God can use people in our life to, to change us, to bring his comfort. He uses his people to do these things too. Let's look at verse 2. Paul says, <clears throat> now complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Church family, this is the same challenge for us today. Being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. How often do we go throughout our days where there's disunity? Even here within the church. Paul gives this personal request based on what they've shared with God. But now Paul has in mind this goal, this goal of unity. Perhaps Paul heard of some disunity within the church of Philippi. And maybe it was because of persecution that they were ha having within the church, things that they were experiencing, challenges. But this description of how to achieve unity that we're going to read, this is how we as the church can have unity. But it takes every single one of us. So how can we as a church, a group of Christians, have unity? Because there's not many greater things than unity. As we think about the Christmas season, we think about giving gifts. Well, one of the greatest gifts that we can give is the gift of reconciliation. The Bible tells us that gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. So as we're giving out candy canes, maybe in addition to giving out candy canes, we bless each other with this sweet, savory gift of grace. Verse 3. Are you ready, church? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It seems so simple. And yet, as I was studying this passage this week, I am convicted. May we all be convicted this morning of our own selfish ambition and, and vain conceit. Paul found it important that he says selfish ambition because there's good ambition. Good ambition to glorify God, to serve one another, to love him, to obey him. But not all ambition is good. We have selfish interests. Conceit is when we think too highly of ourselves. 
we have this excessive self-interest, self-preoccupation. What are we thinking about? What are we consumed about? What do we worry about? Are they things about us or are they things about God's kingdom? And this could be more literally translated, empty glory. When we think about ourselves, it is empty glory at the end of the day. The things that we do for us, we come into God's kingdom empty-handed. But the things that we do for God's kingdom, when we obey him, we come bringing gifts to God to lay down our crowns before him. So in humility, Paul's reminding them to think about what's going on in your culture. That back then, the lowliness of mind to, to come and be subservient to another person was absolutely degrading. You would never, ever do that, especially willingly. The only reason why you would do that was if you had to. But Paul's reminding the church, be willingly subservient, serve one another, look to the interests of somebody else before your own. That Jesus truly knows our motives and our hearts and our desires. And I want to encourage you, church, maybe you're going through a enduring a season where you feel like you've been humble, but sometimes it's, you feel like you can't do it any longer. You want people to know. You talk about other people and you say, I can't believe so-and-so did this. Can you believe? And I'm just trying to be patient and gracious to them. But Christ knows our hearts and we truly will be rewarded for the times where we are servants to others. But he also knows our hearts when we think we're being servants to others, but we're just pretending. Pretending to be humble, maybe to have other people look to us. But Paul doesn't tell us that it's wrong to look out for our own interests, but we should look not only for ourselves, but also to the interests of others. Because we don't need any help thinking about ourselves, do we? Oftentimes we remember as soon as we wake up, oh, I'm, I'm hungry, I'm gonna go look for food. And we think about ourselves. It's just part of who we are because of our nature. But because of the Holy Spirit, we can think about others. So because we've experienced these gifts from God, remember we talked about in verse 1, we ought to think about others. And now we're going to read about the one who gave everything for the sake of others. It's the perfect flow. So now we're going to look in verse 5 and be reminded of the one who did this on our behalf. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If there's anyone that could do these things, it's, Christ, it's Jesus. It's Christ. And it's all too easy for us as we read the next couple verses. We're going to read from ch uh, chapter 2, verses 6 to 11 now. It's going to be easy for us as we read this to admire and stand in awe of who God is. But there's also something here for us to enter into and to imitate. Let's read together as... Uh, verses 6 to 11. You can just follow along as I read. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Because of Christ, now we can look to the interests of others. 
who though he was in the form of God. This makes it sound like he was like God, but not fully God. But really what this verse is describing, it's describing Jesus' pre-incarnate existence. Jesus' existence did not begin in a manger in Bethlehem. He is eternal God. And he existed with the Father and the Holy Spirit in eternity past as the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. The verse here that he uses, it says he was, or another translation, existed, or a being. This is the ancient Greek word that is describing It's meaning his very essence, and it cannot be changed. So what this verse is saying, and you look here, it says, in the form of God. The Greek word there is morphe. There's going to be two different words that Paul uses, but we're going to see three times Paul uses the word form in our English translation. But there's going to be two different meanings for form that we're going to see here. One is morphe, and one is schema. This morphe, okay, as we think about form, sometimes we think about shapes or it has a resemblance. That verse or that word, that goes with the schema, someone that has the appearance or the form. But the morphe, what it really means is it's the essential form that never, ever changes. It's the outward form that changes from time to time. That's the schema. And the morphe is the essential form that never changes. So as you look at this verse, It says, who, though he was in the form of God. You can summarize it and you can make it say, the being on an equality with God. Jesus is fully God. That's what Paul is saying. And even though he is fully God, it says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus did not cling to the prerogatives or the privileges of being God. It's not that he was trying to achieve equality because he already had it, but he chose not to cling to it. And in verse 7, and in doing so, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Again, here's that form again. He emptied himself. So this emptying is from the Greek word kenosis. It came the idea that Jesus' incarnation was essentially a self-emptying. Now we have to be very careful not to overthink this because it would contradict the rest of Scripture. Jesus would not nor could not become less God. But Jesus let go of the privileges and yet he's still king. So as we're thinking about this emptying of himself, Paul's going to tell us what that means. But no Uh, There's no way that Jesus emptied himself of his deity in any way. And some will have a wrong view of this as they're going to teach that maybe Jesus was no longer completely God or Jesus was some kind of demigod like what we see from uh, Moana, like Maui, this demigod who's part human, part God. That's not Jesus. We talked about how Jesus is fully God and Jesus now is fully man. Not one part 50% God, 50% person, but 100% God, 100% human. No deity was subtracted, even though Jesus did renounce some of his privileges of his deity. And so in a way, it says he was taking the form of a servant. This taking was more like an adding to it. Now, we can think about it this way. 
is much as like a story about a king who leaves his palace, he leaves his thrones, and he goes out into the streets to be with the people. Maybe he takes off his robe and he puts on street clothes, but he does not ever become less of who he is as the king, does he? Now, we don't really have kings in our country, and maybe it is hard for us to relate to. So I thought about it this way. Last year, there was an NFL quarterback who was retired just about two years out of retirement, and he decided to go to an open tryout at Penn State to see how he would do in the tryout. Uh, The well-known quarterback, you might recognize him. Um, Here's a picture if you have it. Okay, he shows up to the open tryout like this, and he's throwing the ball like 60, 65 yards easy to the receivers. Well, as he's standing there and kind of showboating a little bit, um, one of the coaches who's there inspecting the players kind of stands next to him and, and just says, he's pretending to be somebody else. And the coach just looks at him and says, so where did you go to school last? And this is Chad Powers is his name. He says, oh, I, I was homeschooled. I never played ball on a team. Really? My mom was my coach. Your mom was your what? My mom was my coach and my teacher. Oh, did you, did you get good grades? No. Oh, tough teacher? She wasn't very smart. But she was a good coach, though. This is Eli Manning from the New York Giants. And as Eli Manning put on this makeup and this wig, right, he didn't lose any part of who he was or his ability to throw the ball. Now, I know this is kind of a silly illustration for us, but as we think about Christ, who left his throne in heaven, he put on flesh to be like us, and he never forfeited any part of his divine nature. Jesus is fully God and fully man. We call this the hypostatic union, two natures as one. And unlike Eli Manning, who was there showboating his talents and gifts, Jesus, he took on flesh and was made a human in every single way. And although Jesus is fully God and King of kings, he came as quite something different. And this is one of the many reasons why I love Jesus. So let's take a look. It says that he took the form of a servant. Jesus here, not in exchange But in addition to, he did not trade his deity with humanity, but he took on the form. Again, this word form is the word morphe, meaning he's completely human. That cannot change. We know this to be true, that Jesus Christ, who put on flesh, who died on the cross, was buried, resurrected in a glorified body. He didn't become a spirit. Again, he was in his glorified body and ascended to the Father with his glorified body where he will be forever in his glorified body. As he put on flesh, Jesus will never remove his humanity again. He became born in the likeness of men. Jesus emptied himself in the form of the servant and now is in the likeness of men. So that Jesus looked like a human. Let's look in verse 8 now. It says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So now here Paul's using form, he's using the schema to show that, yes, morpha and schema, Jesus put on flesh, he is fully human, but he also is in human appearance. In every way, he is fully human, and he had to be human. God himself put on flesh to pay the penalty of our sins. 
Does anybody out here like sports? I love sports. And there's a great illustration uh, as we think about hockey. Um, the goalie, if he commits a penalty, he will not pay the penalty that he committed. The coach then actually can pick any player. Now, it has to be a player for them to be eligible to take the penalty. And they would take that penalty upon themselves and pay for the penalty in the penalty box. The goalie would stay out on the ice. Again, for us, as we think about Christ, he had to put on flesh to be like us. God with us so that he would be born under the law. Galatians chapter 4, it says this. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. That only a man could be born under the law. Only a human being could redeem other human beings born under the same law. And only a perfect human, Christ Jesus, could keep and fulfill the law perfectly. Jesus had to be fully human because there was a necessity of shedding of blood for the remission of sins. We see that all the way back in the Old Testament. Without the, forgiveness, without the shedding of blood, there would be no forgiveness of sins. We see this again in Hebrews as well. That Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, sacrificed his, himself, shed his blood to cover the sins of humanity for those who put their faith and trust in him. And lastly, the humanity of Jesus enables him to relate to us. He can sympathize with us. Hebrews 4, 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just like us, just as we are, yet was without sin. Praise God for Christ who came, put on flesh, and yet never sinned. He faced all the temptations. He knows exactly what it's like to be human, to endure suffering, to be tempted, and yet he never sinned. Indeed, Christ humbled himself and became obedient he humbled himself. He took the form of a man and not a more glorious creature like an angel. He humbled himself. He was born into poverty among a despised people. He humbled himself. He was born as a baby instead of, of as a man. He, he, was, he humbled himself in, in the way that he had to learn and practice a trade of a, as a carpenter. He humbled himself as the disciples he chose. He humbled himself as he faced temptations that he allowed himself to endure. He humbled himself and he became in complete obedience to the Father and submission to the Holy Spirit. He humbled himself in the way that he willingly submitted himself to the death, to death on a cross, utter humiliation to the public eye. And yet, why? Why would Jesus do this? To the point of death, even death of the cross, that God wanted to demonstrate his own love for us. That there is no limit to God's love. That Jesus was and will forever be the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. What a great display of the power of Jesus. But he did this to show the depths of his love for you. He put on flesh, became obedient for you. Because he loves you so much, there is nothing more that needs to be done. And God showed us that there is nothing 
that he would hold back, but he would give everything for the sake of us so that we could have a relationship with the Father again. Let's read verses 9 to 11 again. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So therefore God has highly exalted him. Christ did not crown himself, but the Father crowned him. He did not elevate himself to the throne, but his Father lifted him there and has placed him on the throne. And now that every knee should bow, not only is Jesus exalted, but the whole world will be brought into submission to the Son because of what he's done. This is not implying that there's universal salvation. This doesn't mean that everyone will be saved. For we know that it's by God's grace through faith that we are saved because of the work of Christ that allows us the opportunity to be saved. But it does mean that everyone will ultimately confess Christ's lordship, either with joyful faith or with despair. Paul is drawing on this idea from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23. It says, by myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. He's talking about Yahweh in this passage. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Jesus is God. That everyone under the earth, either the dead who are hid in the earth, shall be raised by the power of Christ, the devils and the wicked souls will, will know and understand that Jesus is God. Every tongue should confess. The combination of tongues confessing, knees bowing, gives the evidence of the idea that there is complete submission to Jesus, both in word and in action. And our choice now is, will that take place before our life here ends and we enter into eternity? That God sent Jesus to be a baby for you, but not just to be a baby, to be obedient to even the point of death on a cross so that we have the opportunity today to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. The confession of Jesus Christ as Lord reminds us to consider the great significance that even then we understand that for the people in Philippi, they had to swear allegiance to an emperor and they said that Caesar is Lord. Here Paul is reminding us that Jesus Christ is not just Lord above Caesar, but he is with a capital L O R D, Yahweh. He is God, Lord of all, Lord of all creation, the King of Kings. This is our Savior, Jesus, who left his throne in heaven to put on flesh, to die on the cross for our sins. Church family, I want to invite anyone in this room who maybe has never made that decision to follow Jesus before to say, Jesus, I desperately need a Savior. I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. That by believing and putting our faith and trust in God's word that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he died on the cross for your sins, 
that he came back to life. It's not based on anything that we can do or say. It's not based on a magical prayer or special words that we say. It's by faith that we're saved because of what Jesus has done for us. He has completed the work. There is nothing more that needs to be done that pays the penalty of all of our sins that we've ever done in our past and ever will do in our future. The payment has been paid for because of what Jesus has done. Because, he was, because he's made a human for us. If you've never made that decision, I want to invo- invite you to make that decision today and recognize that for us, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says this, there is one God, one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Church family, as we're reminded this Christmas season, may we not only understand this truth for ourselves, but may we serve one another in the church family. May we serve one another in our communities, spreading the gospel of the good news of Jesus, that he has come, Jesus fully God. He has been now God with us, Jesus fully God and fully man. And church, I want to remind us that It's not enough just to come here on Sunday mornings to attend a service, to come and fill a seat, to stand, to sing and to sit and to leave. I want to encourage you, the church needs you. As Paul challenged the church to think of others before yourselves, how can we do that if you're not here, if you're not serving? That it's not just enough to come and attend a class or a service. But church family, we want you to serve, to be a part of the church, to be the church. I remember growing up that I would come when I was little with my soccer jersey on. As I told you before, I love sports. I dedicated a lot of my time to playing sports. And my parents would take me to all the travel soccer games that I had for the season. But I'd come dressed in my jersey with my soccer socks on and my soccer jersey And some services, I'd have to leave a service early to travel half hour to an hour away from my games. Maybe some of you can relate to this. It was a busy life. But there was a point in my life where I recognized that this is not what God wanted for me. Because I was missing church over and over every Sunday. I saw that my parents were willing to to make that sacrifice for me. But there was a point in my life where I, I realized that it was causing me to be separated from God's community. And it wasn't until I started to serve in the church that I realized what Christ's sacrifice really was made for me. That he came to be like us so that we can become like him. We do this through service, by thinking of other people before ourselves. That Jesus gave up everything so that we can serve our families, serve our church, serve our communities. And it's not just about being part of a program or creating some new small group, but it's by giving ourselves daily to serve others because that's what Christ did for us. And church, I want to encourage you, as I serve and work with the younger generation here, they don't need to see more people attending a church service. They need to experience Christ through you. That when you see someone and you greet them 
with a joyful smile, with an encouraging word of truth, when you tell them that you're praying for them, that's what they need to see. They need to see people be like Christ. So this Christmas season, may we remember that Jesus came fully, humbly as a baby to serve, to give his life so that we can be like Christ. Be like Christ this Christmas, church family. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful, so thankful that Jesus left his throne in heaven to become like us. Put on flesh and endured the temptation and yet never sinned. Fulfilled the law so that he could pay the penalty for our sins. God, I want to invite those who are in this room that maybe have never made that decision to follow you. If that's you here today, all we have to do is put our faith and trust in Jesus because Jesus has done everything for us. He has paid the penalty of our sin by dying on the cross for our sins, and he came back to life. And if you believe that, then God calls us his own. He doesn't see us as sinful, but he sees us as blameless and perfect like his son, Jesus Christ. God, as a church family, as we look to this passage, may we be reminded this week to serve one another, to look to others' interests before our own, that we would be like Christ this Christmas. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church family. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.